Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Jason. And I'm Irene. And today we're talking about the South African activist Simon Seko Nkodi. We respectfully acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nation and pay our respects to their elders both past and present. We acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to the land on which this podcast is recorded. I have a few content warnings for this episode before we get started. We're going to be talking about apartheid and racism in South Africa, as well as police violence, the killing of protesters, imprisonment, and mentions of capital punishment. We'll also be discussing homophobia, HIV AIDS, including death from AIDS-related illness, and some mentions of depression. If any of that sounds like something you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip this episode and check out the rest of our content. So in terms of sources for this episode, there's no published full-length biography of Simon. So most of my information from him has been pieced together from interviews, articles, and book chapters that talk about aspects of his life. For that reason, some aspects of the timeline of this episode were not entirely clear to me, and I found that even Simon contradicts himself in talking about when events in his life happened. I don't think Simon is, you know, fabricating his story. I think that's just the nature of somebody talking about their life off the top of their head. But I did just want to mention that if the dates ever don't seem to line up or I can't answer a question about when something happened. Yeah, I mean, I've done this about my own life and I'm 27, so. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So Simon was born on the 26th of November in the black township of Soweto in South Africa. And straight off, his birthday is generally given in secondary sources as being in 1957. Every source I came across from Simon himself put his birth in 1959. Oh, that's quite a difference. Yeah. It's not that uncommon to run into people where it's like their birth certificate says June the 8th, but their family always celebrated on the 21st and things like that. Yeah, it's not like a discrepancy between like birth and registration and baptism or something like that. It's a discrepancy of two years. No one I found writing secondary sources picked up on this discrepancy. Oh, weird. And I think that's just indicative of the lack of biographical work about Simon. Yeah. So I have no reason for this. I have no explanation for this. That's just how it is. I guess we trust Simon on this. We have no reason not to in that case. Yeah, like I would believe Simon got other dates wrong in his life. I don't believe he got his birth year wrong. That's a pretty weird thing to stuff up. Yeah. So Simon grew up under apartheid at a time when South Africa's politics were controlled by a white minority, largely descended from 17th and 18th century Dutch settlers. The majority of the population, black South Africans from a variety of indigenous ethnic groups, were disenfranchised and strict laws segregated races and controlled black people's movements. Many black South Africans were displaced from their homes and forced to live in segregated areas known as townships, such as the one in which Simon was born. Under the laws of apartheid, Simon's black parents were considered illegal squatters in the area where they were living in his early childhood. I don't know exactly where this is, but I assume they'd moved out of the township at this time. Okay, so it's like he was born in a township that was like legal under apartheid and then they tried to leave. I assume that's what happened. Like, I know he was born in a black township and then his parents, wherever they were living, were considered illegal squatters. Black people were allowed to live in black townships, so I'm not sure where they moved and when, but I do know that this is the case, that they were living somewhere. Where they shouldn't have been on account of their race. Yeah. And Simon did just move around a lot during his childhood. Hmm. So I don't know exactly where he was living when. So one of his earliest memories was having to hide his parents in a wardrobe from a police raid. He was nine at the time. They gave him the key and told him to lock the wardrobe 
And when the police came to the door to tell the police they weren't home, so they couldn't be arrested for what was considered illegal squatting or trespassing in their home. Luckily, the police believed Simon when they said his parents were out and they left. In 1974, when Simon would have been in his mid-teens, the South African government introduced a new policy on education, decreeing that Afrikaans, the Dutch-derived language spoken by much of the white ruling class, would be the compulsory language of instruction for several school subjects. This was strongly opposed by black students like Simon, who were already vastly disadvantaged by South Africa's segregated education system and simply didn't have the Afrikaans skills to pass their exams in Afrikaans. By bringing this in, did they just, like, throw it at all students at once? Were they just like, cool, you're in your final year, your your exam's in a different language now? Yeah. So Simon failed all his exams that year, and he said that that was Because he didn't speak Afrikaans. Yeah, that was pretty much what happened to everyone in his class. They all failed everything. And he went with some other students from his school with a petition to the principal to say, look, this can't happen, we're all going to fail. And the principal was basically like, yep. You'll keep redoing the year till you pass. Okay. So it was through protesting this issue that Simon first became involved in activism. Protests against the change were mostly conducted by students themselves. So their parents' generation and even their teachers, many of whom were black. So that principal, for example, I mentioned was black. But these people generally saw this change as something they just had no power to fight against. And they felt disenfranchised to the point where they weren't willing to do anything. So Simon says of his parents, Our parents used to tell us, you can't do anything. You will never change the system. But Simon became involved in student protests. He attended several meetings, including one held at a church to discuss what action the students should take against these changes. Police arrived at the church and opened fire on the meeting. Twelve students were killed. At their funeral, Simon was arrested for the first time and spent four months in prison. He would be arrested several more times as a student activist in the following years. Hell, that happened fast. So he was born like one sentence ago. <laughs> yeah, so he's about 15 or 15, 16, 17, depending on what year you consider he was born. But he's mm. in his mid to late teens at this time. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's obviously awful. Yeah. We're going to move on briefly to Simon's first queer relationship now. Oh, okay. It's be a <laughs> tone shift. Hopefully a more fun time. So this is another instance where I just want to mention that t- the timelines that Simon gives in various accounts don't match up. In some accounts, he says that he came out to his family and then he had this relationship. So this relationship occurred with his family being aware of what was happening. In other accounts, he says that he had this relationship we're about to talk about and that was the impetus to come out to his family. So there's a bit of a discrepancy there. I don't think it fundamentally changes the story I'm about to tell you, though. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we can easily concoct a story where, like, he was into this boy and they talked about it or whatever. And then he was like, I need to tell my parents. Yeah, but also it may just be one or the other and yeah. just misremembered. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's a thing that people do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's yeah. true. Like, he definitely recounts the same conversation with his mother and once he says, like, my mum didn't know that I was dating this man, Andre, at the time, and she said this. And another he says, my mum knew I was gay and dating Andre, and she said this. And it's the same instance and the same oh, yeah. conversation. Yeah. So I think Simon is just wrong sometimes. Yeah. But yeah. that's okay. So in his late teens, Simon responded to an ad for a pen pal in the youth magazine Hit, and he began correspondence with a white bus driver named Andre. Andre's letters gradually became increasingly romantic, eventually after a year of correspondence sending nude photos of himself to Simon. That's so brave, sending nudes in the mail. <laughs> 
<laughs> is it more brave though? Like if you send nudes on the internet, anyone could get hold of those. In the mail, they're just in an envelope. But I mean, can anyone get hold of your nudes that you like direct message to someone? Uh, it depends on the app you yeah, use, right? It depends on the app. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it's the same situation, essentially. You have to count on there being an individual like postman who's like, what's in here? Oh, hey, it's nudes. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a letter you want to get lost in the mail. No. So he sent some nudes to Simon. Simon? at the beginning of their interactions, had just been looking for a friendship with Andre and he wasn't, like, thinking of meeting Andre or anything like that. He received these nudes in the mail and he says, I looked at his body, I was really turned on, and I said, well, maybe we should plan to meet. <laughs> oh, Simon. Yep. <laughs> so did Simon... You certainly are a teenager, Simon. <laughs> he is a teen. So did he know he was gay before this? It's not really clear. It does seem to be his, like, relationship with Andre that made him aware of his sexuality. I haven't come across him talking about his sexuality in any, like, earlier contexts or, like, talking about realising he was gay in a context that's not connected with Andre. So, no, I think it was through his correspondence with Andre that he realised he was gay. I don't know if it was the moment he opened that envelope of nudes or not, but, you know. Yeah. No, it's just interesting that, like, if he's saying, I looked at these nudes and then I was turned on, yeah. like, did he have some thoughts about that? Yeah. Or... <laughs> did that come as a surprise to him or was he just opened it and he was like, hot damn, Andre? <laughs> yeah, the way he told this story in the one interview I read, I found quite interesting because he really kind of took away his agency from the story. Like, he started on and said, I got this pen pal. And then he said, he started writing romantic letters. He started saying we should meet. He started sending nudes. But then, like, when they do meet, like, it's quite apparent, Simon said, they got the nudes, I was turned on, I wanted to meet. They do meet, they do start a relationship. Like, it's not like Simon didn't want all this to happen, but he doesn't really tell us how he was responding. Mm. Okay. Is Andre older than he is? I don't know how old Andre is. Andre was working as a bus driver, so he's old enough to drive a bus. But I don't know how old that is in, like, <laughs> 1970s South Africa. Yeah, no, I have no idea how old Andre is, I'm afraid. I think he's quite young. Yeah, because... I mean, they're writing to a youth magazine, right? That's yeah, like how they got connected. Yeah, it's a youth magazine. As we'll see in a minute, both of their, like, parents, Andre's parents and Simon's parents, do kind of get involved in talking about their relationship, so... Andre's young enough to have his parents, like, really intervening in his life in this way. But, yeah, I but don't know. But that's also not necessarily a youth thing. It's a yeah. family thing. Yeah, like, that's true, too. Some yeah. people's sure. families will continue doing that for their lifetime. Sure, yeah, but yeah. it's a hint that he might yeah. be younger. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I'm fully ready to believe that Andre is also, like, 18. Yeah, so Andre is, like, definitely young. Don't know how young. So they plan to meet. Andre was driving a busload of students on a school trip from Soweto to the town of Durban. And so I asked Simon to meet him in Soweto and come along. Oh, wow. <laughs> what a call. Just come to work with me at my school. Yeah. A bold, bold move. Another suggestion that Andre was quite young. <laughs> so when Simon arrived at the bus pickup point, he found that they were both wearing the same matching outfit, a white t-shirt and black cord pants. What oh, a gay experience. That's so delightful. That's so good. Yeah. So they spent the six-hour bus ride to Durban largely in silence, probably because they couldn't talk openly in the presence of students and teachers. Which really makes me question, like, what Andre was doing here. That's I fine. mean, if he's only the bus driver, he may have been like, we'll get to the location and then I'll get to have a break. Yeah, yeah. I guess We that, can hang out. I guess that's oh, I'm, I'm more intrigued as to what he told the students and teachers. Like, why was this young man on the bus with them? Yeah. Yeah, especially because Andre is white and yeah. 
Simon's black, right? So he can't even be like, oh, this is my cousin. Yeah, there's not really any framework at the time for black and white people to have friendships, uh, friendships like have a connection that's not an employment connection. Mm. Yeah. So I have no information of what he told them. Maybe he said he was the junior bus driver. Maybe. There were other bus drivers on the trip. There were three other bus drivers and the other three were all black. So oh, yeah, maybe, okay. maybe he just lied that he was training this guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe. yeah, yeah. that's what I was going to imply. We're both in the uniform, t-shirt and court. <laughs> <laughs> uh. yeah. Anyway, so they drove to Durban. Since, as we just discussed, Simon was black and Andre was white, once they arrived in Durban, they were forced to stay in different hotels. So Simon snuck out in the night with his sleeping bag and met Andre at the boss. And this was the first time they really had a chance to actually talk alone together. Are they about to have sex in the bus? They do not have sex in the bus. Simon very simply is like, we did not have sex in the bus. (laughs) 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 Just talked. (laughs) All right, all right, all right. And I trust him because later we will discuss when they do have sex. Okay. So they spent a week together on this school trip in Durban. They seemed to have a very nice time. Andre showered Simon with gifts, including a ring engraved with his name. With Simon's name or Andre's name? Andre's name. Okay, okay. I assume. <laughs> be weird to give Simon a ring that says Simon, but you know. So, as I kind of alluded to before, Simon gives two accounts of his mother's reaction when he returned from this trip. One in which his mother knew he was gay and said, oh, you know, this guy must really care about you. He's been buying you all these gifts and everything. And one in which she didn't know, but she was very uncomfortable with the situation, not because of what relationship might exist between them, but because Simon was socializing with a white man. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Simon recalls her saying to him, you've got your own family. Why are you taking things from a white man? Simon next met Andre at the farm of anti-apartheid activist Derek Hanicom, where Simon was hiding out from the police. So he's obviously continuing his activism throughout this time. This encounter was the first time they had sex. That's how I know they didn't have sex on the bus, which Simon describes as, quote, a disaster. (laughs) 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 Saying, there was lots of not knowing what to do, how to do things. (laughs) He sat down with Derek afterwards and talked the experience over with him. And Simon says he was surprised and relieved to find that Derek was accepting of his relationship with Andre and willing to have a productive conversation about it rather than just be judgmental. So Derek was the guy on the farm? Yeah, staying at Derek's farm, yeah. Did they meet by accident at the farm or did they like plan this out? Are they both activists? Andre's not an activist, so I assume Andre came there because Simon was there. Okay, so Simon was like, I'm hiding out at this farm, you should come over. Yeah. And Andre came and then Simon was like, hey Derek, what do you know about gay sex? I need some (laughs) advice. (laughs) As far as I'm aware, Derek is a straight man. I did a, you know, brief Google of Derek and did not find anything about him being queer, but he has a Wikipedia article, so, you know, he's well known enough that we might know if he was. But he was very supportive of Simon. Okay. Which is nice. Nice man. Good man. In the lead up to Simon's next birthday, his 19th, 20th or 21st, depending on the account, (laughs) (laughs) Simon's mum began to ask why he wasn't inviting a girlfriend round. And so he decided to tell her about his relationship with Andre. His mother was appalled. Simon remembers her asking, what have I done to deserve this? What is my sin? Right. So that is contradictory with the previous story then. Yeah. Regardless of which version of the previous story. No, there's a version of the previous story where she thinks that they're friends and this white guy is showering Simon with gifts, but she doesn't know that there's a relationship necessarily. Okay. Yeah. So there's one version Simon tells where she's just uncomfortable with the fact that he's like going out socially with a white man and that he's accepting things from a white man, but she doesn't realize it's a gay relationship. Yeah. Regardless, at some stage, Simon did come out to his mum and did receive this very negative reaction. 
Although, admittedly, I've definitely known queer people who've had to come out multiple times to their oh, parents. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's so, super true. People come out to their parents and their parents just somehow, like, wipe that from their minds and they have to do it again. Yeah. Yeah. Like, four years later, no, mum, I'm still bisexual. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, like, for example, he does mention that one aunt, when he came out to the family, just kind of went, yeah, it's a phase. Kids are into being gay. Then they're into doing drugs. And then they, they grow out of it all. <laughs> it's also the case that homosexuality just wasn't very well understood in black communities in townships at the time. So I watched a documentary where another black queer person talks about how she came out to her family in the township and their response was just kind of confusion and they didn't understand the difference between homosexuality and being intersex. And they were saying to her, but you're not a hermaphrodite, you're a woman, so what are you talking about? So it definitely could be the case that, you know, he told his mum and she didn't get it and he had to tell his mum. Again. Again. Yeah. Yeah. Unlike his mum, Simon's stepdad was supportive of his sexuality. But when he spoke out in support of Simon, telling Simon's mum that he knew a lot of gay men through his work, there was nothing wrong with them, she became suspicious of the relationship between Simon and his stepdad and forbade them from spending time together. Oh, no. That is unfortunate. Do you know how long he's had this stepdad for? Quite a while. So his surname, Cordy, is his stepdad's surname. Oh, okay, okay. And him and his stepdad were very close. So they very much have, like, a dad relationship. Yeah. In some interviews, he does refer to this guy as his dad. Like, it very much is his dad. All right. If not biologically. In an attempt to cure Simon of his homosexuality, Simon's mum began to take him to various Catholic priests and traditional healers known as Sangomas. Oh, no. So as you might guess, the Catholic priests pretty universally condemned Simon's sexuality. They experienced a mixed reaction from the Sangomas, though. One, for example, suggested that they slaughter some chickens and that Simon drink or bathe in the chicken's blood to cure him. That'll do it, absolutely. But Simon recalls another saying to his mum simply, I don't see any problem. You've got a very intelligent son. He's not sick. Well, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time as this was happening, Andre's mum had also found out about the relationship between Simon and Andre, and she began phoning Simon's house, threatening to kill Simon for corrupting her son. Simon's mother began to call Andre's house, similarly accusing him and his family of corrupting Simon. Eventually, these phone calls transitioned into a more productive conversation between the two women. That's absolutely not how I expected this to go. (laughs) Did they just keep calling, being like, I'm going to kill your son, until one of them was like, can we just get lunch or something, please? (laughs) I mean, I don't know if this is going to go in a positive direction, though. Well, it is, but it's, you know, a happy accident, really. Okay. Okay. I would say. (laughs) So... Because my my expectation is fully that, like, they're threatening each other until they realise that they both hate homosexuals and then they, like, They'll just try and split them up together. (laughs) Well, what they did was Andre's mum found a psychologist called Dr. Overton for Andre to see and she recommended to Simon's mum that Simon also see this same psychologist. Okay. So they sent them off to this psychologist to ostensibly cure them of homosexuality. Sure. Fortunately for Simon and Andre, Dr. Overton was supportive of them and didn't want to cure them. So I have a question. Yeah. How did she find Dr. Overton and why did she think that he would cure them if Dr. Overton doesn't do that? Like, if Dr. Overton's normal approach is not that, is he just there like, I'll fix your gay sons. Send me your gay sons. <laughs> hey, boys, there's nothing wrong with you. Love yourselves. I don't really know. <laughs> I'm not sure where they got like, Dr. Overton. Like, what's going on there? 
I mean, probably she's just been recommended a psychologist by someone she knows. Yeah, I guess yeah, so. Yeah. And she's like, oh, psychologists, they will... They will fix my gay son. Yeah, yeah. They will fix my son who clearly has some kind of impairment or, you know, illness or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. she's just assuming the psychologist is going to be on her side because she assumes that everyone is on her side, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's fair. And then it turns out that he's not. So Simon remembers him saying, Your love for Andre is natural and normal as far as I'm concerned. Cool. Visiting Dr. Overton also had another benefit for Simon. He and Andre both saw Dr. Overton on a Wednesday afternoon with back-to-back appointments, <laughs> which enabled them to see each other despite the current objections by their families. To Did quote- Dr. Overton, like, set this up because of the support of man? <laughs> he may have done. I'm really not sure if the parents knew what was happening here. Or if they knew they were both going to the same psychologist, but they hadn't been like, oh, my son goes on Wednesdays. Oh, my son goes on Wednesdays too. He At 3 is running late. A bit weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, um, well, Dr. Overton wins, so far at least, Best Ally <laughs> Award for like 1976 or whatever year it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Simon says, we actually had our date sorted out by the psychologist's office, which I thought was great. Uh, <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> Eventually, after four months of appointments with both boys, Dr. Overton said to Simon and Andre, I'm finished with you. I can see the two of you dearly love each other. Why don't you move in together? Oh, okay. (laughs) He opened a bottle of champagne to celebrate their relationship and revealed that he too was gay. (laughs) (laughs) So he's not not an excellent guy. He's an excellent gay man. Yeah. Yeah. I love the indication that he's just like keeping champagne under his desk to be like, these boys are so gay. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I, now that I've confirmed that you're both gay and that you're not going to, like, you know, jump back into the closet because of the opposition of your parents, I can reveal that I too am gay and, like... <laughs> Let's have some drinks. We can all have, have a drink. Some drinks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Following this, Simon's mum also grew increasingly accepting of his relationship. She began to speak to other parents of gay children and become aware of the need for queer kids to have familial support. Oh. Well, that is a hell of a turnaround. <laughs> it is, but she got there. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. So Simon and Andre did move in together. They got an apartment together in Johannesburg. They were both studying in the city at the time. So Andre would give Simon lifts to his college on his motorbike before driving off to his own classes. So in Johannesburg, they were able to live together? No. So Simon had to pose as Andre's employee to be able to live with him. Okay. So Simon was pretending to be like their housekeeper. Yeah. I'm sure that kind of arrangement was not super uncommon. Yeah, yeah. Simon definitely says that that was very common in interracial relationships. So Andre and Simon lived together for two years before their relationship eventually ended. They remained friends. Oh, good. Hmm. But at the time, the breakup deeply affected Simon, and he threw himself further into his political activism to take his mind off it. So while studying, Simon joined the Congress of South African Students, going on to become the secretary for the Transvaal region. Simon describes the aim of the group as to strive for free and equal education for all students in South Africa. In 1981, Simon came out to the group. This was such a big deal that a general meeting was called to debate whether he could continue his role as secretary, with members arguing that his homosexuality was un-African, which is something we'll talk about more soon, that he'd been dishonest by not disclosing it earlier, and that they simply couldn't be led by a gay man. Eventually, the issue was put to a vote. 80% of members voted in favour of retaining Simon as the secretary. Cool. That's a better yes vote than we had. (laughs) That's a true fact. (laughs) Grim, but true. (laughs) After college, Simon began working as a coordinator of education programs for an organisation called the South African Institute of Race Relations. 
Here, he met with much more positive responses to his sexuality, and he was even able to be out at work. Good for Simon. I agree. Simon began, however, to feel that he lacked a queer community. In particular, he noticed an absence of a black queer community. As Simon explains it, homosexuality was seen to be un-African and to be a white import. Many black queer people felt they had to either reject their Africanness or reject their homosexuality and couldn't embrace both parts of their identity. To quote Simon, thus our gay expression becomes part of a white context, and there was no black context in which people could be black and gay, essentially. Unable to find a black queer group to join, Simon joined GASA, the Gay Association of South Africa. They were a largely white organisation. Simon was one of just three black people at the first meeting he attended. But he was impressed with their constitution, which advocated for what they called non-racism. Simon quickly found, however, that Garza's actions didn't live up to their words. The group was largely focused around social events, but these were regularly hosted at white-only venues. To quote Simon, The best thing about membership was that, apparently, your little pink card got you into clubs at a discounted price. It was a feast of possibility. The dungeon, the butterfly, Mandy's. I tried Mandy's, and they said, no blacks. The dungeon, no blacks. The only place I managed to get in was somewhere on Jep Street. I was the only black person there, and I felt so intimidated that I never went back. Simon was sometimes even instructed by other Garza members to carry a tray and pretend to be a staff member in order to attend meetings at all-white venues. Yikes. Look, I'm not super surprised by an organisation whose policy on race relations was called non-racism. Yeah, yeah. That it turns out that they're actually not particularly great about racism. Yeah. Just kind of, oh yeah, that's not a thing that we do here, but not actually engaging with how that intersects with How to actually actively reject racism. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And they actively build themselves as being an apolitical organisation. Like, that was a conscious decision that they had made. Oh, I see. And anti-racism is very much a political stance. Whereas non-racism is just like, we don't engage with that. Not for, not against, just don't engage. Sorry, Garza, you suck. (laughs) Yeah, so the white leadership of Garza saw this apolitical stance as being necessary for their survival. One Garza president, Anne Smith, suggested that if they had taken any sort of political stance, and this doesn't just mean anti-apartheid stances, but even being too vocal about wanting political change for queer people. Anne Smith says if they had done that, she believes they would have been banned. And then, quote, not only would we discredit the gay movement, but we would not be able to provide vital services to gay people. Obviously, that doesn't make it okay. But I can also see how that is, like... Yeah, you can see where the decisions came from, but there are only decisions available to white people. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, and it's also, like, to the extent that you're able to then provide services for your queer community. Yeah. Like, as you said, firstly, only the white queer community, and also, like, you know, there's probably a limit to the services you can provide because you're trying to avoid any kind of political opinion. Any kind of, yeah, like, controversy, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and realistically, the services that Gaza provider were mostly social events. Yeah. Which were clearly, <laughs> yeah. like, non-racist social events are very difficult under apartheid. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Non-racist, all-white social events. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. At the same time, Gaza was billing themselves as a multiracial group, especially to an international audience audience, which was very critical of apartheid. To quote Simon again, Garza was using us to blacken up its image. Every time there was a function in a private house, so that's a function where black people would be legally allowed to attend, the picture would be taken with a few darkies prominently displayed and that would be sent overseas. Simon decided that some action had to be taken and he began writing to various black newspapers, calling on black gay people to contact him and to attend a meeting to discuss what they should do. 
In September 1983, over 70 people attended this meeting. The majority were black, but there were also close to 20 white people in attendance. Simon says of the meeting, What was fascinating was how different their language was to the white middle-class members of Gaza. They said things like, We have to fight for our rights. We have to mobilise. Ah, yes. They're not apolitical. Yeah. So they originally considered forming their own black, gay, and more political organisation, but they lacked the resources to do it, and they instead ended up forming an interest group within Gaza. So in May 1984, they formally founded what they called Saturday Group, because it met on Saturday. Ah, yes. And they couldn't (laughs) think of a name. (laughs) And Simon was elected as the group's coordinator. At first, many members of Saturday Group joined Gaza, and they did have quite a close relationship with Gaza, including meeting in Gaza's community centre. But the relationship quickly broke down. White members of Gaza began complaining that the centre was left in a mess, that the Saturday group were getting drunk, and that neighbours were complaining. I presume that none of this was true. I think that, you know, this was exaggerated, but also one author, Mark Gavissa, who's a South African Mm -hmm. queer author, pointed out that whereas white members of Gaza could go out and get drunk in a club and go and make noise in a mess in a million other venues, black gay people had nowhere else to go. Yeah, so so they had to party at the community centre. Yeah, they had to party at the community centre because they couldn't party in the clubs, which are all white, and they couldn't party in the townships because many of them didn't have their own homes. They lived with family, so you couldn't have a gay party in your family home. Yeah. And there was a lot of homophobia there. So, yeah, like, to some degree, they probably were getting drunk and leaving more mess, but there's a reason for that. And obviously, you know, straight-up racism also just comes into play. Yeah. It was eventually proposed by Gaza that a limit should be put on the number of black people who were allowed into the community centre. Cool. Love that for a non-racist organisation. Yeah. So a lot of black people at that point quit Gaza and they began to take their Saturday group meetings elsewhere, eventually finding a few township she-beans, so they're unlicensed bars in the townships, that would house them. In particular, one called Lee's She-Bean. Despite these difficulties, Saturday group was very successful for a time. They organised a phone counselling service, home visits for gay people living in townships, support for young people coming out, as well as social events. Simon began to travel to other areas, helping establish branches of Saturday Group elsewhere in South Africa. I know it's silly that they're called Saturday Group, but I feel like it's a very welcoming and endearing kind of name. I think it is, yeah. 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 It also makes it easy to tell someone about it without outing yourself if you don't know, you know, if they're gay or not. Like, where are you going? Oh, I just go to this social group called Saturday Group. We meet once a week to hang out at the Shebeen. And if they're gay, they'll go, oh, okay, oh, yes, too. we go to Saturday group. And, and if they're not, they'll yeah, be like, well, we're oh, like, yeah, you go to the pub once a week with your friends. Enjoy cool. your club. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, although, like, Simon does say they just called it Saturday group because they didn't know what else to call it. <laughs> yeah. I think there are benefits to the name. Yeah, no, I think yeah. that Saturday group it sounds chill and appealing in a yeah. way that Garza did not. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's also, I mean... You can see the benefits of having an actually politically active group, right, where, you know, they're actually providing services to the queer community beyond social events. and they're doing quite a lot. At the same time, Simon continued to be involved in anti-apartheid activism, joining anti-apartheid groups such as the outlawed African National Congress. In 1984, he helped establish the Vile Civic Association, which was affiliated with another anti-apartheid group, the United Democratic Front. The association began working with tenants in the township of Delmas to organise action against government-imposed rent increases. On the 3rd of September 1984, they organised a stay-away, or general strike, from work and school. And Simon worked as a marshal as around 11,000 people marched in protest against the rent increases. The march turned violent. Four town councillors were killed by the crowd, 
and 29 protesters in Sebekeng, where Sion was protesting alone, were killed by police. At the funeral of these protesters on the 23rd of September, police allowed mourners to enter the cemetery before cordoning it off and arresting 900 mourners, Simon among them. Yep, that sounds like police. Completely yeah. unoriginal police tactic. I mean, you'll recall this is not the first time Simon has been arrested at a funeral. Yeah. Most of them were released, but Simon, along with three others, were imprisoned. They formed part of a group of 22 arresting connection with the rent strikes, known as the Delmas 22. So under South African law at the time, a person could be imprisoned for up to 180 days without charge, with the possibility of renewal for another 180 days, and so on. What a bad idea. Yeah, you're right. Ah, yes, indefinite imprisonment for no reason. Love that. Yep. So Simon was held for nine months without charge before entering into what would become the longest-running trial in South African history. The specific allegations against Simon were that he'd attended and spoken at several meetings where crowds had been encouraged to take violent anti-government action and where calls for the killings of those four town councillors took place. And thus, it was argued that he took part in the march knowing that the councillors were going to be murdered and therefore that he could be held responsible for the murder. So he was accused of, among other things, murder and treason – both punishable by the death penalty. So although Simon had come out multiple times before his trial, only four of his co-accused knew that he was gay. So he began strategizing with these four on what to do if, or more likely when, his sexuality was brought up during the trial in an attempt to discredit him. So things came to a head, however, before Simon had to consider what to do if he was outed in the trial. A prison warder got hold of a note written by one of the Dalmas 22 to another prisoner arranging to meet for sex. As Simon explains it, the letter was very detailed, you know. I mean like love story. I love you. We made love nicely yesterday. Would we ask a certain policeman to open the cell for us again? The United Democratic Front leader, Patrick Lakota, known as Terror, who was one of the 22 imprisoned, called the 22 to a meeting to discuss the contents of the note, denouncing it as disgusting. These people are just constantly so brave. Like, imagine being in prison and writing love letters. Like, yeah. to someone else in prison, that explicitly. Like, what a bold move. It is a bold move, it's true. Yeah, yeah perhaps even more bold than inviting your boyfriend on a school trip with you. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, it seems like this guy is not great. No. Tara is not great right now, but like, Tara will improve. Okay. Oh, okay. Is this Tara as in, like, as in like Terror or Tara as in Fear? As in Fear. Okay. Cool. His name what is Tara as in Fear. What did he do fear? to get that nickname? <laughs> I don't actually know. <laughs> you don't I don't want actually to know. know. <laughs> yeah, he went on to become, like, quite a high-up South African politician, so you could definitely look him up and find out, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but not relevant to this story. Not okay. relevant right now. So Tara read the note to the group. And a heated conversation followed about what being tried alongside a gay man would do to the group's reputation and their international image, and whether they wanted to push for two separate trials. Eventually, Simon couldn't take this anymore, and he stood up and announced, Here you're not talking about the person who committed this act. You're actually talking about homosexual men, and I am one. He then walked out of the room. In the weeks following that, the group held daily meetings on the issue, many of them now unwilling to be tried alongside Simon. The group's lawyers, however, agreed that it would be best if they were all tried together. Did the lawyers have reasoning for that? I don't actually know what the lawyers' reasoning was for that. They did actually call in some queer lawyers as well to, like, be a part of that conversation. 
Oh, interesting. So, like, I think a very reasoned conversation was had about what would be best for the group. I'm glad that we're able to have this kind of yeah. fairly reasonable conversation, like, and able to have these kind of meetings where they hash this out. Yeah. Like, yeah. It yeah. seems like, you know, like, obviously the system is very bad and, like... And they're in a bad situation. They're in a terrible but... situation because of the government. But, like, I mean, it's good that at least in this one specific context there was, like, some legal rights available to them. Yeah. So, following his coming out, in this period where his sexuality was being debated by his co-accused, Simon became very depressed and he was hospitalised several times. It was during one of these hospitalisations that blood tests revealed that he was HIV positive. So, at the time in South Africa, there was very little awareness of HIV. Simon recalls, When I first heard about the word AIDS is when I was tested in prison, and I didn't know anything about it at that time. Simon struggled to accept his diagnosis. At first, he even questioned whether it was real or whether it was part of an effort by the apartheid regime to undermine and discredit him. He sought a second opinion, however, and had it confirmed. At the time, he chose to only tell a very small group of friends about his diagnosis. The trial itself began in January 1986. In the end, it was not the prosecution, but Simon himself who brought up his sexuality, when he was able to use his attendance at a Gaza meeting as an alibi for an anti-government meeting that he was accused of attending. Which one did he actually attend? (laughs) No, Your Honour, I'm afraid I am gay. (laughs) Yup. To quote Simon, everything changed after that. The trial was being followed internationally, so this amounted to an international coming out for Simon. But rather than lead to backlash, as his co-accused has feared, Simon received an outpouring of international support. His coming outs have just, like, increased in scale every time he's done it for his whole life. He's, like, started with coming out to my mum, coming out to my workplace, and coming out to the entire world. (laughs) (laughs) That's an exponential growth curve. (laughs) He did have a quote, which I didn't actually write down, where he said, you know, I feel like I've been coming out again and again throughout my life since that first time. And I guess at this point he was like, you know what? I'm sick of it. going to make this international. (laughs) No one will ever think I'm straight again. (laughs) Yeah. He received a lot of support from the international gay community after he came out. One particularly supportive group was the Scottish Homosexual Rights Group. They wrote to Simon and asked what support they could provide him and what they could do for him. Simon responded that supporting him alone would do more harm than good in terms of the relationships between him and his co-accused. So he gave the Scottish group the names of all 22 of the imprisoned and the Scottish Homosexual Rights Group began writing individual cards to each of them. It's really nice. It is nice. With this positive international response, the attitudes of Simon's co-accused also began to shift. Even Tara started to accept Simon, and Simon talks about how the two of them began going running together every morning. Oh, that's nice. Despite support from the international gay community, Gaza in South Africa failed to provide any support to Simon during his trial. Almost like it's a pointless organisation. Yeah, it's literally just to go to white clubs. That's yeah. it. That's the point. It gives you club discounts. <laughs> that's all it does. Their president, Kevin Bother, explained that this was because Simon was charged with murder and they couldn't sanction criminal activity by supporting him. But he's only charged, you idiots. Yeah. Also, to quote the South African author Mark Gavissa, this statement was a revealing indicator of how entrenched Gaza was in the apartheid perception of extra-parliamentary activity as criminal activity rather than the only available means of black protest and resistance. Yep. It's what happens when you're apolitical. Yep. The biggest quotation marks I can possibly put around that. (laughs) (laughs) So Simon resigned his membership of Gaza in 1985 
The group itself was struggling due to financial mismanagement and other problems, and Gaza folded not long after that. Cool. (laughs) 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 Sounds like it deserved it. (laughs) Yeah. So, in July 1987, Simon was released on bail, and he began work on founding a new gay organisation, which would come to be known as GLOW, the gay and lesbian organisation of Witwatersrand, which refers to the geographical area, including Johannesburg. Okay. That was a catchy act. I'm just thinking about glorious ladies of wrestling, though. (laughs) (laughs) That's not what this is. (laughs) Okay, but are you sure? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But maybe they could have meetups sometimes. Yeah, they could have a crossover episode. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, this is around the same time, I think, too. I guess so. Yeah, Yeah. I think it is. Like, this is the 80s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just, like, so bizarre that these two things coexisted with the same acronym. (laughs) Glow is just a good name. Yeah. So Simon describes his Glow as committed to fight for the rights of gay and lesbian people in our townships. The founders discussed whether it should be a black-only organisation, but eventually agreed that it should allow both black and white members. Okay. While Simon's bail conditions prevented him from attending the founding meeting, he wasn't allowed into the townships and he wasn't allowed to meet with more than three people at a time, but he was elected in absentia as the group's co-chair. So serious question. He's not allowed in the townships because of his bail conditions, but he's not allowed out of the townships because he's black. Where's he he meant to be? I don't know. I do know that he definitely struggled to find somewhere to live at this time, but I don't know exactly what, like, areas he legally was allowed to live in. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there must be some capacity to live outside of a township, right? Yeah. Yeah. like, you know, like, when he lived with Andre earlier, he was not in a township. Yeah. Yeah. So, black people were expected to carry papers with them, like, ID papers with them all the time, and you could have on those papers information about your employment and therefore permission to live in certain areas because of your job. So it's possible that that would have been available to him had he had a job. He was also struggling to get a job because he's a political prisoner. He's still going to court every day. People know who he is. Like, obviously, people aren't going to employ him. But, yeah, that's the situation. But two months after the founding of GLOW, in June 1988, Simon was acquitted. His friends welcomed him home with a surprise party at Lee's Shebeen, where many GLOW meetings were held. Hey, Lee's Shebeen. <laughs> My favourite venue in South Africa. Yeah, sure. <laughs> a place that I have never been. The only venue I've heard of in South Africa. <laughs> Is it still there? We don't know. Probably not. Yeah. So, Glow was very successful. They offered a monthly newsletter, they set up working groups on various issues affecting the queer community, and they soon had chapters throughout Johannesburg. When you say the queer community, yeah, were they doing things for, like, trans people? Like, what's the situation there in South Africa? I don't really know, to be honest. Like, I know that they did have specifically lesbian groups and they had specifically lesbian newsletter. Yeah. I know that when they held their first Pride March, which is going to be two years from when we're talking about, mm-hmm. so in 1990, one of the people who spoke at that did explicitly mention in, like, an interview I was reading that there were trans and intersex people there okay. as well as gay and lesbian people. But I, I just don't know what work Glow was doing around that. Okay. I just wondered because when you sort of said the, like, founding mission of GLOW, it was, like, for the rights of gay and lesbian people in the townships. Yeah. I don't know exactly and they do, you know, as a lot of people do, they do at this time use gay and lesbian and queer pretty interchangeably interchangeably. and it's not always clear 
who is actually falling under that queer umbrella. Yeah, yeah well, I yeah. mean, and we've already established that at least some people in the townships kind of conflate like yeah. gender identities and sexual identities. So there's probably also a bit of that going on. Yeah. And yeah. that's kind of what I was wondering, whether it's like a limitation on the language that they used or whether it actually describes the gay and lesbian actually describes the. Yeah. I think it's probably a bit of both. I mean, I don't know, but I would guess that partly it's a limitation of language and partly it's that, you know, these kind of organizations and I'm generalizing here from, you know, around the world generally mostly cater to gay and lesbian people yeah but you know maybe one day we can do an episode on a trans south african and learn we'll find out yeah so simon still hadn't publicly come out as hiv positive but one aspect of glory's work that he was very involved with was their hiv aids activism he headed glory's aids working group and he also founded various other organizations to support people living with hiv aids in townships aids was generally viewed as a white gay disease and so there wasn't a lot of knowledge among the black gay community about aids and many of them believed that they weren't at risk because they weren't white so the work he did was a lot of educational work around teaching people about AIDS and about safe sex. Being heavily linked with GLOW and the gay community, these projects struggled to receive government funding. One Department of Health representative is quoted as saying, AIDS is not a problem in this country. Homosexuality is illegal and we don't have homosexuals, so we don't have AIDS. I can't believe that there are always just politicians going around like, we don't have gays here. Mm. Yeah. Like, yeah. what kind of dudes? <laughs> Yeah. Was it Mitt Romney or someone else yeah, in Utah maybe. who did this? Yeah. I know Utah did this. Yeah, like it's just one of those things where it's like, I can come to terms with you being opposed to queerness. Yeah. But have you managed to pretend it's not here? I mean, denying reality is just what conservative politicians do yeah. on many issues. Yeah. So, yeah. You know. As part of his work, Simon travelled not just throughout South Africa, but also internationally, speaking about his experience as a black gay man and meeting with gay and anti-apartheid groups around the world. So, since the early 1980s, South Africa's white government had gradually been giving in to internal and international pressure to reform the apartheid system. In February of 1990, key anti-apartheid figure Nelson Mandela was released after 27 years in prison, and the ban on the African National Congress was lifted. If we'd had alcohol, I would have, like, taken a drink for Nelson Mandela. <laughs> like, when is Nelson here? <laughs> like, we could have had, like, like, like a betting ring as yeah. to, like, how long how into long, the recording yeah. before we mentioned Nelson Mandela. <laughs> well, he's been in prison most of this time, so... <laughs> I, I know. He's here now. <laughs> the government began to enter into negotiations with the African National Congress, ultimately moving towards a national election in which people of all races would be able to participate, and to the creation of a new South African constitution. The gay community began to discuss their place within this, and in particular what attitudes towards homosexuality the African National Congress would bring to these negotiations. Mm. Okay. So the ANC was not outright homophobic, but it was clear that some of their leadership saw gay rights as a fringe issue. In 1987, for example, ANC Executive Committee member Ruth Mumpati said when asked, we don't have a policy on gays and lesbians. We don't have a policy on flower sellers either. Mm -hmm. In the late 80s and the lead up to 1990, however, the ANC did become increasingly vocal in support of gay rights. And this was no doubt in part due to Simon's very public coming out. Terry Lakota was now the national chairman of the ANC. And he explained that Simon's presence and coming out in prison had, quote, broadened our vision. How could we say that men and women like Simon, who put their shoulders to the wheel to end apartheid, how could we say that they should now be discriminated against? 
I'm glad you've grown as a person, Tara. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've, we've seen a lot of personal growth we have. in this episode. Yeah. yeah, Simon's mom, Tara, it's been good. Yeah. So in 1990, partially in an effort to pressure the ANC to fight for the inclusion of an anti-discrimination clause with regard to sexual orientation in the new constitution, the idea of a Pride March was floated at GLOW. It's not clear who first came up with the idea. Simon is sometimes credited with it. His co-chair Bev Ditzi is sometimes credited with it. But Simon was definitely a big champion of the idea, which wasn't universally accepted within the black gay community. It was felt by some black gay activists that a pride march would distract from and even discredit the anti-apartheid movement. One queer black woman who was interviewed under the pseudonym Beryl recalls, I thought Simon's energies would be better spent on struggle-related activities, so that is anti-apartheid activities, and not on a silly gay march. I cringed in embarrassment that he had even said the words gay rights. The people that I associated with would never put their sexual rights over the rights of race. Thanks, Beryl. Yeah. Intersectionality. Don't worry, Beryl too is going to go through. Oh, <laughs> Sorry, Beryl, I shouldn't have doubted you. Every homophobic person gets, like, a nice arc. <laughs> Beryl's not even homophobic. Beryl's, like, queer. Beryl was just like, this is my priority. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's some internalised homophobia yeah. going on there. Yeah. yeah. Like, in yeah. that quote. Yeah, no, that's Because there's also, like, even in the context of, like, when they were all on trial, when you're on death row, I can't super fault people for being like, are we more likely to survive if we throw these few under the bus? Yeah. Like, yeah. it sucks, but I can't be as mad about that as I would be in other circumstances. Oh, yeah. Obviously, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. very contextual. Yeah. 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 No, that's fair. So the organizing of the march went ahead. Glow began producing posters to promote the event. They were made up with a black outline, but with no color. And the idea was that they would take them to clubs and engage people in the idea of the march by getting them to color in the posters themselves. Oh, cool. That's very cute. Yeah. <laughs> That's adorable. I, I like would it. much rather if I was at a club and someone was like, do you want to just go out the back and do some colouring in? <laughs> yeah, I want to go like, to Absolutely. Uh, do some co- cocaine? No, colouring in. Colouring in. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The cocaine room is on the left. Yeah. The colouring room is on the right. Yeah. yeah. So Bev Ditsy, Simon's co-chair of GLOW, recalls, We didn't know whether people would come or not. We were really terrified that it would only be a few of us and we would be attacked while we were marching in the street. But on the 13th of October 1990, the day of the march, hundreds of people arrived at the Institute of Race Relations where the march was set to begin. Marshals handed out paper bags with eye holes cut in them to those who were too scared to show their faces but who still wanted to add to the numbers of the march. There were speeches, including one by Simon, where he spoke in favour of a combined struggle for black and gay rights, declaring, I am black and I am gay. I cannot separate the two parts of me into secondary and primary struggle. There will all be one struggle. After the speeches, the marchers set off, chanting slogans like, We're here, we're queer, we're everywhere. We're here, we're queer, we're everywhere. Maybe it works in the South African accent. I don't know. I thought that too. And then I watched a video and I was like, no, it still doesn't rhyme. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. So it's estimated that more than 800 people in total joined the march. They did face some opposition. One attendee remembers the Christian fundamentalists turned up. And I remember one of their posters, which was meant to depict our souls burning in hell. (laughs) To me, it looked like Chinese noodles over a braai, which is a South African barbecue. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's a hell of a burn. I would love to see a picture of this poster. (laughs) (laughs) Once the march reached their destination, the gay neighbourhood of Hillbrow, people began emerging from their apartments to show their support. 
Many of those who'd chosen to cover their faces pulled off their paper bags. The march ended in Hillbrow with a kiss in and a picnic. Aww. A kiss in? A kiss in, yeah. They all sat in the park and kissed. (laughs) I've never heard that term before. That's incredibly wholesome. (laughs) Way better than a sit-in. Yeah. So after the Pride March, Beryl says, That Saturday in October was a turning point in my life. My views changed completely after that first Pride March. Aw. Well, that's really nice. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously, you know, I feel like when you are struggling on multiple fronts to change society, it can sometimes feel like you need to abandon one of those fronts. And, like, that's not true. It's not what works. Yeah. It's good that, like, you know, this experience changed her views on that. Yeah. I'm happy for her. Yeah, Mm. I'm happy for her, too. So, in 1994, jumping forward a few years, Simon voted in an election for the first time, voting for the African National Congress and Nelson Mandela became South Africa's president. This was the first South African election in which adults of all races were able to vote, and it marked the end of apartheid in South Africa. That same year, Simon became part of a group called the National Coalition for Gay and Lesbian Equality, whose main goal was campaigning for this constitutional anti-discrimination clause to be included in South Africa's new constitution. He met and negotiated with government officials, including Nelson Mandela, and when the constitution was ratified in 1996... It included a clause which stated, The state may not unfairly discriminate directly or indirectly against anyone on one or more grounds, including race, gender, sex, there's various others, and sexual orientation. South Africa became the first country in the world to constitutionally outlaw sexuality-based discrimination. Oh, good job. Yeah. So in the late 90s, Simon became increasingly unwell with AIDS-related illnesses. He passed away on the 30th of November, 1998. He was remembered at two memorial services, one at St. Mary's Anglican Cathedral in Johannesburg and a second in the township of Seboking. His coffin was draped with a rainbow flag. Johannesburg's 1999 Pride March was dedicated to Simon, and a street in the city has also been named after him. Johannesburg Pride is now Africa's largest and oldest Pride parade, and it celebrated its 30th anniversary last year in 2020, albeit online. Well, I'm glad that Simon got, like, a lot of recognition yeah. um, for the role that he played, because clearly it was very important. Yeah, no, he did. And, like, there are many quotes I could have ended on of people talking about how important Simon was, not just to the gay movement or the anti-apartheid movement, but also to the fact that the gay movement in South Africa is, and, you know, I'm sure it has its problems, but is largely an integrated, like, multiracial movement. Mm. Yeah. And there was one yeah. quote that said, without Simon, we have two gay pride marches. Yeah. And, yeah, like, the fact that I wasn't actually aware of the thing about the constitutional inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, like, so I wasn't sure, as you were telling that story, which way that was going to go. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's really nice to hear that it went the good way. <laughs> it went the good way, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a big thing that they're the first country to have a constitutional anti-discrimination clause. And, it, yeah, it's not something I'd ever heard of either. Mm. And definitely now, having read a about Simon, I'm surprised that there's no, like, biography of Simon out there. I was surprised by how little, like, secondary work there was about a lot of this out there. Like, all the information's out there. There's archives and stuff, but... But nobody's ever put any of this together in, like, a digestible book. Yeah. 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 Or, say, a film. Yeah. <laughs> For example. Just saying Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> like, first person to do this, 12 Oscars. <laughs> True. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, like not to diminish the seriousness and importance yeah. of the story, but it does sound like an Oscar bait movie. 
It does. It like, does. like specifically in regards to the people who are homophobic developing and becoming better people. True. Yeah. yeah, yeah like yeah. every every arc in that story, it's positive. Yeah. Yeah. There is a documentary about Simon for what okay. it's worth. Well, that's nice. Yeah. And I would definitely recommend watching it. It's called Simon and I. It's just on the internet if you Google it. Oh, who is really the I? Cool. The I is Bev Ditsy, the other oh, okay. co-chair of Glow. Oh, so did she make the documentary? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. So it's also about like her and her life. Yeah, 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 yeah. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm Alice. I'm Jason. I'm Irene. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find the rest of our content on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you find us on Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate it if you'd rate us and leave us a review, as that helps us to reach a wider audience. You can also find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. You can also email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com. And you can find all of those things, along with sources for our episodes, which we're gradually uploading, on our website, which is queerasfact.com. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, you can sign up for our Patreon, where you'll get a variety of rewards, including some free merch and a chance to vote on the topics of some of our episodes. Or if you want to support us in a more one-off way, you can buy some of our merch from our Redbubble store, or you can just tell your friends how great we are if you don't want to support us with your money. We hope you're all having a very happy Pride Month. This episode was the first of our episodes for Pride Month, and we're going to be bringing out some bonus content for Pride throughout this month. We'll be back on the 15th of June, when Irene will be talking to us about the 1980s British activist group Lesbians and Gays Support the Minors. And we'll be following that up on the 22nd of June with a bonus episode on the 2014 film Pride, which depicts the movement. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.